0: all right good morning guys good morning. if you got a bible and i hope you do matthew 5 is where we're going to be together today um while you're turning there let me just point your attention to something on the screen real quick we're having our next get to know you event on march the 7th this is for people who are interested in joining the church finding out more about the church we'd love to have you there at our downtown campus march the 7th at four o'clock uh, come enjoy uh, some time with me and Jenna and some of the rest of the staff and find out what our church is about, okay? If you got any questions about that, you can catch me after. Uh, for everyone else, I hope you found Matthew chapter 5. Let me give you a little recap. Last week we started our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we ca- we're calling this the best sermon ever, right? So just to clarify, this is probably not the best sermon ever. Um, although if you think that, thank you. Thank um, <laughs> you. This is probably just going to be a, if we were titling sermons that way, it would probably be the most mediocre sermon ever, right? Uh, But we're looking at, oh man, y'all are so sweet. I tell you, y'all are a breath of fresh air. That 10 o'clock was kind of stuffy, all right? But we're looking at the best sermon ever, which was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we introduced it last week uh, by showing how Jesus has come to give us true righteousness, now, this is a righteousness that isn't superficial, right? But a righteousness that does right because it loves right, okay? Does that make sense? Uh, in other words, we can have a kind of righteousness that is hypocritical, that is fake, that is um, going through the motions and it, that it does the right thing because it knows it's the right thing, but it doesn't really feel it in here, right? It doesn't really like doing it. It's just doing it because they feel like you're supposed to. So the, we talked about we don't, Jesus has come to give us not that kind of righteousness, but a real kind of righteousness. And the way I illustrated this was um, you don't have to command me to kiss my wife, hug my kid, or to eat a cheeseburger, right? Nobody's ever had to say, Dallas, I command you to do those things, right? I like to do them, right? And so that is what, that's the kind of righteousness that Jesus has come to give us. A kind of righteousness that doesn't need to be commanded to do right, but longs to do right. So when we showed how Jesus has come to give us this righteousness and what it looks like for our lives when he does, today we're going to come to Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 48, a section called the Six Antithesis, where Jesus clarifies further what it means to live righteous. Now, there are going to be two main objectives, and I'll summarize these main objectives in just a second, but just bear with me. This is all kind of groundwork for where we're going. There are going to be two main objectives. That Jesus has in this sermon, okay? In, in this section of the sermon. The first main objective is to show us that we need His righteousness because in and of ourselves, this is a standard we will never meet, okay? And, and man, can I just tell you, I love preaching the sermons that are the hardest on you guys because what I, what I hope you, you take away from is that, man, I can't do it, right? Yep. Amen. You can't, right? That's Jesus' whole point. So part of Jesus' point here is to prove to us that we can't do it. The second thing that he wants to do is to show us the kind of heart that he creates in us when we have his righteousness. So sum it up this way. Here's the kind of the main idea of the sermon, okay? Jesus is clear that we can only be righteous in him, and he alone can create righteousness in us, all right? First part there, we can only be righteous in him. You're not good enough. Second part, and he, cre- he alone can create righteousness in us, he is the one who changes our heart to make us want what he wants, to make us love what he loves, to make us do right because we love right. So with all that said, have I prayed yet? Let me pray and then we're going to start, okay? Dear God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word, Father. Lord, is so convicting to me this morning as we walk through this, Lord, and I just pray that your word would sit on each one of us, that your Holy Spirit would sit on each one of us, and that by the power of your word in our lives and by the power of the Spirit in our hearts, dear God, we would um, hear you talk to us, even me as I preach, dear God, speak to me through your word, and dear God, help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is clear that we can only be righteous in Him, and He alone can create righteousness in us. So with that being said, I think what we need to see first and foremost in this sermon is this. True righteousness depends on what Jesus says, not what others say. True righteousness depends on what Jesus says not what others says look with me at how verse 21 starts and we'll just use this as an example because every section starts this way jesus says this you have heard it said that it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but i say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment notice this formula jesus uses here you have heard it said but i say to you Jesus begins by correcting the mistaken understandings of righteousness and of the law that the Pharisees have been teaching. Now, the Pharisees have been teaching this is what it looks like to be righteous. Now, why this is really important for us to take and pick up and apply is that it's not just the Pharisees who've been doing this all this time, right? We still do the same thing today right? We say this is what it looks like to be righteous. This is what it means. Jesus is stepping into this space and he's saying, you have heard it said X, but actually I tell you why this is what it means to be righteous. And I want you to notice he elevates the stakes here, okay? All of this leads to one thing. One thing is clear. Jesus is the authority on what it means to be righteous, Jesus is the authority on what it means to be righteous. So that no one determines right and wrong and what the law meant but Jesus. Jesus' whole point here as we go into this sermon is that you may think you know what it means to be righteous, but I am the one who defines that. Now, before we go on to the points, so I think that being said, what we would need to see is then what, what did Jesus say, Right? And I think that's where we're going, but before we do that, let me just give us a couple implications of what it means that Jesus is the authority on what it means to be righteous. Number one, these are not going to be on the screens, these, this is just for free, okay? Number one, other people's standards do not matter. If Jesus is the authority on righteousness, then other people's standards do not matter. Let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. We live in a world, and even in our religious community, that defaults to its own standards for what it means to be righteous, such that the most practical way I can think that that I've seen this play out in the church, especially over the past um, 10 to 15 years, is that we elevate certain sins and diminish others, so that what we would say is something like this. The religious standard would say that homosexuality is a bad sin, but we kind of say living together before marriage not that big a deal right you see what you now, and that's not to beat up on anybody all right just hear me say this we're about to beat up on everybody in just a second okay but you see what you see what I'm saying there the world standard the religious standard says you have heard X but Jesus actually come and say, comes and says Y okay so other people's standards don't matter that's the first implication the second implication is this comparison isn't helpful if Jesus is the authority on what it means to be righteous, then comparison is not helpful. Now, this is the church's favorite pastime, okay? Our favorite thing to do to make ourselves feel better, if we're looking at, man, well, I'm such a sinner, our favorite thing to do is to look at other people and say, well, I may be a sinner, but I'm not as bad as they are, Amen. all right? Jesus here comes, and he whispers in our ear, Actually, you are as bad as they are. You see, if Jesus is the authority on righteousness, righteousness, then comparison isn't really helpful. Because he says you're all bad off. He says we're all falling short. Number three, if Jesus is the authority on righteousness, then minimizing sin isn't an option. See, uh, and this goes back to the thing I said earlier the standards. We have these standards that we elevate or lift up or this is worse than this and that's worse than that. And what Jesus is coming to say that, uh, is that all sin, even sin of the heart and not sin of the hands, leaves us condemned before God and destined to hell. So you can minimize if you want to, but you're crazy. So minimizing isn't an option, which leads us to number four. If Jesus is the authority on righteousness, rationalizing sin is insane rationalizing sin is insane what Jesus is going to come here today and do is give us a diagnosis now imagine with me if you will you had had a doctor's appointment you go to the doctor's appointment the doctor says to you listen you have cancer and this cancer is not bad yet this cancer can be treated but if you do not deal with it this cancer will kill you you get in your car you go home you walk in you look at your wife your wife says hey what the doctor say doctor says i'm fine No worries. What would you call that person? I'd call them insane. Right? Oh, it's not, the doctor said it's not that big a deal, right? I mean, this I got some time. I can worry about it later, right? Rationalizing sin, rationalizing this diagnosis is insanity. Ultimately, Jesus is showing us that true righteousness isn't just about right actions, it's about right attitudes. Okay? He's coming and he's laying this diagnosis before us. And the diagnosis is that we're all falling short because it's not about right actions, it's about right attitudes. So often what we're going to find out about Jesus is that Jesus is not concerned with the work of your hands, okay? What Jesus is concerned about is the state of your heart. Jesus is here to show us that righteousness that comes from him is a matter of the heart, not just the hands. Here's what Jesus knows. If he has the heart, the hands will follow. If he doesn't have the heart, the hands are useless. So he's here to to elevate the stakes. He's not worried about what you're doing with your hands. He's worried about where your heart's at. He's not worried about your actions. He's worried about your attitude. Now with all that said... What we need to kind of see here, then, is that Jesus is about to lay before us a test. Okay, so you didn't know this morning when you came to church you were going to take a test today, but you are. Um, so uh, some of y'all, it's been a while. Don't worry, there are no scantrons. Okay, but as we, some of y'all are like, well, it's a scantron. That means you're 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 over that uh, level there. I won't say I won't call it the heel, but maybe so. All right, so we're about to take this test. Okay, so. I'm going to ask us one question continually as we go through this sermon, okay? The question's going to be how we're doing, okay? And I want thumbs up, thumbs down. we passing, we're failing. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? And so we need to look at what did, we're going to answer this question, what did Jesus say? And we're going to examine ourselves as we go. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be really fun. You're going to enjoy it, okay? What did Jesus say? First thing Jesus said is this. Jesus says anger is harmful. Look with me at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And listen, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and Go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What's the first thing Jesus says here? Jesus says that anger is harmful. Now, notice what's happening here. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. All right? So, in other words, according to your standard, you think. As long as I don't actually kill someone, I am being righteous, I am obeying the law. And Jesus is coming to say that no, it's not actually that. If you've ever been angry with your brother or or angry with another person so much so that to their face or behind their back, we're not really that society anymore, right? We're the Facebookers, right? We get on Facebook and be like, you fool, right? But if you've ever been angry with someone enough, some of y'all giggle because that's you in political season, if you've ever been angry enough with your brother to say, you fool, then you're as guilty of murder as a murderer is. He's raising the stakes here. Now, why is that? Anger is harmful because it is the attitude of murder. Jesus's point is that it's the attitude of the heart that leads to the actions of the hands. Now, those of you in here in this room who have a temper, you understand that this is true, Right? Like, if you're in here, you consider yourself to have a temper. You know it's true. Like, And I've used this in all three sermons, okay? My poor wife just is the every sermon illustration I have, right? That God God gave me Jenna because he was like sermon illustrations. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I, so my wife, you might not know this, she has a temper, right? And now when you look at her five foot beautiful, you think, she is the sweetest person ever. And she is. Like, man, such a sweetheart, right? But my wife goes from sweetheart to like, I'm a little crazy real quick, okay? (laughs) And so I asked her one day, I said, Jenna, do you think, do you think that if, in the heat of the moment when you lost your temper, you could kill someone, right? Now, five foot one, beautiful, sweet, I thought her answer was going to be, no, Dallas, I could never kill someone, what are you talking about? Before I could finish the question, she was like, yes, absolutely, (laughs) right, right, and I'm over there like, emptying in the dishwasher, like... <laughs> right? But here's what she understands that anger is the attitude that leads to the action, right? Such that if you are willing, anger is harmful because it leads you to, it, you could treat somebody in a sinful way, even if you don't harm them because that's the same attitude. This is Jesus' point when he says, if you call your brother you fool, right? This is treating someone in a sinful way, even if you don't actually physically assault them. Anger is harmful because it leads us to treat people in a sinful way even if we don't follow through with the action. It's the attitude of the heart that leads to the action of the hands. And ultimately, anger is harmful because it leaves you liable to judgment because, listen, if you're the type of person, and listen, I can just be honest with you, this messes with my head so much sometimes. If you're the kind of person who harbors anger in your heart, then you're the kind of person who doesn't understand the forgiveness you've been given. All right. Question number one: How we doing? Not good. O, oh, <laughs> oh for one, right? All right. Not murderers, but we ever been angry? We called somebody a fool. O oh, for one. All right. Jesus says anger is harmful. Number two: Jesus says lust is serious. Look at me at verse twenty-seven. You have heard that it was said, "You should not commit adultery," but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, lust is serious because it is the attitude of adultery. Attitude of adultery. I, I want to spend some time here because I think, I think, I think our cultural moment, this this sexual morality, is just north of Sodom and Gomorrah. needs a, We need to understand what this is saying. Okay. Jesus says that lust is the attitude of adultery. Now, he's, he, he's even more specific. He says that if you've looked at someone with lustful intent... Now, we need to understand what lustful intent is. with lustful intent is to look on someone for the purpose of sexually admiring them. So, notice my definition here. It's not just like thinking sexually explicitly about them. Okay? It's sexually admiring them. All right? Now... I, I wanna be clear and let me just say this, all right. Some the temptation right here is gonna be for all you ladies to say what well, he's talking to the men in the room, all right? Statistics tell us that women are just as involved as online in online pornography as men are, all right? So listen, we ain't getting high and mighty here today, right? We're all batting 0 for six at the end of this thing, okay? We're talking to men and women. So what now what, so what does that mean practically in our life, all right? The thought that you could... Or let's say you see someone attractive walking down the road, right? And you're on the sidewalk and you, you run into someone attractive. And the thought comes into your head. I could think X kind of way about that person, right? I want to tell you that that is not what Jesus is saying looking on somebody with lustful intent is here. Jesus has, God created us as beings with sexual desires, Okay? Lust is when the, we go for the we entice those sexual desires outside of the normal bounds. Okay, so it's not that, that thought comes to your head that you could think such a way. That's called temptation. The best way I know to tell you what lo- looking with lustful intent actually is, and every man in this room is about to know what I'm about to say, it's the second glance. It's not the thought that I could look and think such a way. It's the thought, well, I probably should look and think of such a way. I I want to. Now, I'm spending a little bit of time here because very few of us actually have an understanding of how serious this actually is. And I know this because I grew up in an environment hearing this kind of stuff all the time. Man, it's all right to look at the menu as long as you don't order, right? Anybody? Looking ain't a crime, right? But I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says looking, just entertaining the thought is equal to adultery. Such that some of us, some of us in here come in feeling high and mighty week to week because we think we're not, well, I'm not the kind of person who cheats on my spouse. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never cheated on my husband. And the thought, Jesus says, the thought in your mind of what could be or what might be or what can be is equal to the action with your hand. Jesus says it's just as serious. How are we doing? Oh for 2. But I want you to notice the warning that this one comes with. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Listen to me. i got to spend time where Scripture spends time, okay? Sexual sin messes with you. You will believe every lie, fall victim to every foolishness, and do unimaginable damage to your soul and the souls of others you're involved with when you give yourself over to sexual sin. And what Jesus is saying is do whatever it takes to avoid going down that path. Now notice that. Notice the progression here. He says, "If your eye causes you to sin, where the eye is the gateway to the heart, right? So he's saying before you give yourself the opportunity, cut your eye out. Like don't even give yourself the opportunity. But if you make the mistake, and it goes from heart to, I mean, it goes the eye to heart. Before it goes from heart to hands, you cut your hand off before you do it. And listen." This is me pleading with y'all because what I don't want to happen is for you to come to my office and say, I didn't cut my eye out, I didn't cut my hand off, and now I've done X and my wife caught me. I've done Y and my husband found out. And can I just be honest with you here? This is is life or death for me. If y'all don't think preachers can't fall, you ain't been on Facebook this week. It's every week another one falls such that if I can just be honest with you, man, my, and I've told you guys this before, my commitment is that money and honeys I ain't going down that way, right? I kill somebody at a Georgia game, you can believe that, okay? Like embezzlement or adultery, like you think, not my pastor. Because, man, and I even, uh, just practically, I just want to, like, give you guys insight into what this, I hope this looks like for us. I read an article probably four years ago, man. And if anything sticks with you four years, you know it's it, it stuck with you. And the article was called, I Would Rather Die. And in the article... A pastor talks about what, uh, what would happen if he fell into sexual immorality. And he lists all kinds of things that he would bring untold hurt to his wife, lose the respect of his kids, that he would bring shame on his church, his parents, all these things. And, and his conclusion was just this statement, that he would rather die first. And can I tell you, this is such life or death for me that for the past four years, when the uh, lustful thought has approached my mind, when the temptation has come knocking to, to even begin to think a certain way outside of what the bounds are, there's been one thought that's been in my mind. God, kill me first. And until we begin to take it that serious, guys, we're just barely seeing what Jesus said here. Now listen, that ain't saying that I'm righteous. That may say I'm more, I'm more of a sinner than you are, right? But we got to take it serious. I'm begging that we would be men and women who pursue purity. That in the midst of a world that looks like Sodom and Gomorrah, our sexual ethics would be a light to the lost. That we would be the people who, who are faithful to our spouses. That we would be the reasons that pornography shut down. That we would be the reasons. All right, how we doing? 0 for 2? Yep. Y'all okay? I'm like Preacher, preacher preaching. All right. Jesus says that marriage is forever. Third one, Jesus says that marriage is forever. Now, thirty-one, thirty-two. it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this, this would appear that Jesus... I got plenty of time. Y'all turn your alarm off. This... <laughs> This would appear that Jesus is going from attitude to action, right? But I think he's actually hinting at an attitude of the day, right? A certificate of divorce granted a woman permission to remarry whomever she wanted to. And we know from the rabbinic sources in the first century, that the pattern these certificates took reflected a widely accepted practice of divorce, dissolving marriages that God meant to be forever. So understand what I'm saying to you. See if this sounds familiar. The attitude of the first century population was that if I get married and this does not work out like I think it should or I want it to, what I can do is just divorce her and move on to the next one. Now, what does that sound like? Right? So, so that Jesus is actually speaking to an attitude. And Jesus is clarifying that though it may be widely accepted in the world's standard to divorce and remarry however we see fit, it is not accepted according to his standards. And I'm going to say this, and this is going to be harsh. It's going to be on the screen, but I hope that it conveys exactly the point I'm talking about. And I'll temper it in just a second. But I, I want it to shock us just a little bit. Divorce outside of sexual immorality or abandonment, and I can make a case for abuse within abandonment, okay? Divorce outside of sexual immorality or abandonment boils down to a matter of convenience. Now that might sound harsh to us, but the reality is we know it's true. And the truth is that anybody in here who's been, ha, ha, who's been through a divorce can te- that's not within sexual immorality or abandonment can testify to that. Because what happens when two sinful people get into marriage together and they won't out is at some point they come to the conclusion that it would just be easier if this wasn't a thing anymore. And what Christ is showing us is that righteousness requires that we stop living for what is convenient and start living for what is right. Now all you guys in here who just, who have been married one time and feel high and mighty right now, like I'm gonna get one, I'm gonna get one. Remember, we're talking about attitudes. We're talking about attitudes, not actions. And here's what I know: that on your worst day in your marriage, when things feel like they were that, that you were just struggling and you were just butting heads, here's what I know: that you thought to yourself, "Man, it would just be easier if this wasn't a thing anymore. This is hard." Oh, y'all, don't, y'all, don't, y'all ain't never thought that? Yeah, you have, right? I know you have. It would just be easier. All right? So guess what that leaves us? Oh for 3. Now, let me temper this with grace just a little bit. If you are here and you've been divorced this morning, this isn't for me to hit you over the head with a bat. This is for me to show you the same thing that this sermon is showing everyone else, namely that we need God's righteousness because we are not righteous. 0 for 3. Jesus says, mean what you say. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Let what you say be simply yes or no, right? So the point here seems to be that your character should be so sound that you have no need to take an oath. But if you'll notice, Jesus says, do not invoke certain things. And I think what he's saying is righteousness would prevent us from taking oaths over things, over things which we have no authority, right? So he says, do not swear by heaven. In other words, don't swear by things you don't have authority over because what that displays is an attitude of pride, right? And I don't know about you, man, I thought maybe I'm going to get one. Then I got really convicted because I realized I say this very statement probably three or four times a week just to Danny. Danny, so help me God, I'm going to, right? No parents? All right, cool. All right? And and it can be followed up with anything, right? And I'm not saying it's right. What I'm telling you is that according to this, it's wrong, right? Because here's the deal. I don't have the authority to invoke God's actions, right? And especially not to do whatever I'm telling Danny I'm about to do, right? Danny, so help me God. I'm going to get the wooden spoon and you're not going to school tomorrow, right? That that ain't God, okay? That's Dallas' flesh, all right? And some of y'all are judging me, but it's all right. Righteousness prevents us from talking flippantly. You'll be judged by every careless word. How we doing? Oh for 4. Jesus says turn the other cheek. Look at verse 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, let me be clear here. This is not so much about physical altercations as it is personal interaction, okay? So, real clear. Jesus is not condemning self-defense, self okay? Let me give you an illustration of what I'm saying, okay? If somebody were to come in this door right here, run down to the stage, uh, load up a haymaker, and, try, and proceed to try to just beat the daylights out of me, right? Jesus is not saying that I have to sit there and take it. He's not condemning self-defense. As a matter of fact, if that happens, like they run through the door, like I'm like, yep, this is the moment I've been waiting for, it, right? Like, what am I going to do here? Like, I'm ready for it, okay? So it's not talking about self-defense. He's talking about personal interactions in which insults are being traded. The, the, the slap to the face is the highest form of insult imaginable. And the temptation in all personal interactions is to go eye for eye, Right? You insult me, I'm going to insult you. Such that this is the kind of example Jesus is saying. That we are to be the kind of people that if somebody were to walk down to this altar after it was done, and they said, Dallas, I cannot believe that you preach that message. I hate the way you preach. I hate who you are. I hate the way you dress. I can't believe your wife hadn't murdered you yet, right? And they said all of these things, and then they capped it off with a backhanded slap. I am to be the kind of person who turns the other cheek. That I don't trade insult for insult. But out of the grace of God given to me, I respond in grace. We aren't the kind of people who trade insult for insult. We absorb the insults and sins and do not return them in kind. So that when we're in the workplace and that incompetent co-worker who knows nothing comes up to us and they says, I don't like the way you did X. You smile and you nod and you give them the love of Christ and you don't return in kind, right? And can I just tell y'all, man, this, this hit me in the heart when I realized what it was saying, right? Because I'm going to tell you, like, I've got the opportunities and the tendencies to do this, right? You, you, God bless somebody, comes up and says, preacher, you ought to consider X, right? My immediate return is you ought to consider having a quiet time, okay? <laughs> right? Preacher, you ought to, and, and here's the thing, I know about you guys, Right? Like, your preacher knows, you know, y'all think you got your... You, preacher, you ought to consider doing X. You ought to consider talking to your wife like she's a human being, right? Like, I can go slap for slap. Like, and I... I that, that is my tendency. And Jesus is saying that no matter what anybody comes to us and says, that in a personal interaction, we don't go slap for slap. We absorb and go to the heart of the matter. We don't call... We don't say, you fool. We absorb and give grace. Then finally, Jesus says, love your enemies. 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, love your neighbors, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Here's the point. Righteous people treat their enemies the same way God treats his enemies. So church, how are we doing? 0 for 6, right? He gave us... You have heard it said, but I say to you, and every time, we fail the test. Every time we, we, we see this test, and we see the standard Jesus applies to us, and here's what you should be feeling in this moment. Oh God, I don't measure up. Jesus, I, I'm not there. All of this leaves us with one obvious conclusion. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Savior. No one passes this test. No one even gets one of these answers right. Right? You come up to me and say, I got two of the six. Guess what? You're a liar and you're even worse off than what you think you are. No one passes this test. If this is what righteousness is, then we're all done. Finished. We are destined for hell. And this is exactly what Jesus wants us to take away from it. Jesus went up on the mountain, and he taught us these things to help us understand that if it's on us to get there, we're not going to make it. But praise God, when Jesus came off of this mountain, he made his way to another one. And when he went up that mountain, he carried a cross on his back. And when he got to the top of the mountain, he was nailed to that cross. And then after he died on that cross, he made his way to a tomb. And then after three days, he bust out of it because not even death could hold him. And here's the point. You can't pass the test, but Jesus did. Listen. This should feel heavy to you. Like, man, Can I, I, I preached a sermon on lust, right? And I, what am, How am I supposed to preach a sermon on lust, right? How am I supposed to preach a sermon on anger, on not returning insult? You know what I felt as I was preparing this? Literally this morning, God, I don't know how I can preach this. Here's the point, I can't. I don't add up. I don't stack up. Jesus passed the test. And what Jesus is offering you is the righteousness that he passed the test with. He sat down, he took the test for you, he went up and he turned it in. This is what it means to be saved. This is the baseline of what salvation is. That at the bottom of your soul, listen to me, you understand I can't pass the test, but I got a God who did. So, that all that despair we're feeling, all that hopelessness, all that helplessness that we say, God, I don't measure up, it becomes a weight lifted off of our shoulders. But we say, Thank you, God, because you did. So, my prayer this morning is that, like, listen, if you're here and you need that te- passing test grade, you need that righteousness given to you, all that is required of you is in that humility to say, God, I didn't pass, for you to call on the Savior who did. Would you do that today? Like, I'm literally asking you, would you come to the Savior today? The second thing I just want to close with is simply this. I don't think God forgave us, guys, and left us. I think part of Jesus' intention here is to show us the kind of people we could be if He creates this righteousness in us. Such that he he doesn't simply, he don't just, that's South Georgia. He does not just simply forgive us, he begins to form us. Such that maybe, 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 we become the kind of people who don't trade insult for insult, but look at somebody with grace and compassion and love them. So that maybe, maybe, maybe we don't become the kind of people who just are filled with lust. But when lust approaches, we say, I would rather die. And we look at somebody as created in God's image. So that we're not the kind of people who are filled with anger, but walking in forgiveness. He does not just forgive us. He has come to form us. This is who he's come to make us. So Christian, would you just consider this morning how he might be leading you in deeper formation into this? Would you pray with me, God, forgive the foolish ramblings of a man, God. God, I pray that if I said one thing that was not honoring to you, that you would forgive me. And God, I, I'm just so convinced, God, that you, you have forgiven us and leading us to formation, God. And that's what I want in my own life, to God, to be the kind of man you formed me to be. God, that's what I want in the life of my family, for for my wife to walk in your formation. That she would look like a well-watered vine, dear God, because she's so connected to you, God. That my child would grow up in a home that does not trade insult for insult, dear God. That does not make a habit of calling our neighbors you fool, but makes a habit of loving our enemies like Christ. loved God. That's what I want, God. And Lord, if I can just be honest, I'm so far from it, dear God, that I'm tempted to despair, But Lord, I remember that you came off of that mount and you went up on another one for our salvation. And I pray that you would begin to help us to appreciate that more and more even now. In Jesus' name, amen.